if you watch a nature documentary with the sound off and you just see some penguins on the screen and you don't hear the voiceover, you have no idea what they're saying about those penguins. It could be anything. You're just like, oh, there's penguins. It's not very interesting. Or maybe it is, but I don't know what to make of this. Turn up the volume and hear the voiceover, and then suddenly there's information and a message. This penguin is the oldest living penguin of its tribe and has all the respect of its peers. I don't know, you know, and I've watched them, so... This peng these penguins are endangered due to global warming, or these penguins, even though there's global warming, will be okay, you know. So what the voiceover says really changes vastly the way we interpret the image. Why am I telling you this? Well, as Albert Ellis, the great American 20th century psychologist, noted, the thoughts that we add to our experience drastically change the way we interpret our life, our experiences. For instance, you're on your way to work and you see a close friend as you are on the uh, subway uh, entrance or on the street. You wave to them and it looks like they see you, but they don't wave back. Now that's just an event. If your next inner thought is, my friend saw me and he didn't wave back, then anger arises, a sense of outrage, resentment, more storytelling, how dare they. I, I've been a good friend to them. All I did was wave, and now, after all I've done, they don't wave to me. On the other hand, if we follow that experience of seeing a friend waving and they don't wave back with the thought, oh, they probably didn't see me, then there's no resentment, there's no residual anger, there's very little residual thought. So the voiceover, the internal chatter that we add, like the voiceover in a documentary film, has a huge ramification over the way we experience our life. And the Buddha said, there's no greater effect that our inner chatter has than when it comes to the thoughts we have about ourselves. He had a great deal to say about all the times we spend thinking about ourselves, how much suffering it creates, when it's skillful, when it's not. A lot of our thinking about ourselves, which comes up in life, revolves around trying to locate, grasp, understand what could be called our true core self. And the Buddha had a very interesting take on this. Unlike the Hindus and the Brahmins that were his contemporary that very much believed that there was a core eternal self, that lied in every being. The Buddha actually said something quite different. He said that if you look at all the things that could create a core, lasting identity, soul, or self, if you investigate each of the aggregates or components that could create it, aggregates or components being our thoughts, our feelings, our perceptions, 
the sense of consciousness, especially of our senses, and our bodies. Those are the five things the Buddha said could create the sense of identity or true self. If you investigate each of those things, they're all changing. Our body states are changing. One day we're energetic, the next day we're sluggish and tired. There's pains one day, not pains the next. Feelings change. One moment we're calm, relaxed. The next moment we could be anxious. Sometimes we don't even understand what's the change. We observe the thoughts that flow through our minds. They're changing probably the most rapidly of all. Our perceptions of the world, the way we view experiences change. So the Buddha said you look closely enough and you just don't find anything that creates a lasting identity. As he put it in the Gadula Sutta, he says, just as a dog tied by a leash to a post circles around that post and gets nowhere, people who believe in a core lasting identity circle around that idea and get nowhere because they don't find it. There's nothing there to be uncovered. Everything where we look constantly changes and it just frustrates us. And yet, the Buddha at the same time had positive things to say about the self as well. In the Sabhasava, the Buddha said, the self is what experiences the results of our actions. It's also what chooses between actions. But to think of it as internal, not subject to change, is incorrect and foolish. So, Finally, in another sutta, the Buddha said, the self is your foundation. What else could provide you with a foundation? So be careful how you construct it. That's very interesting, the idea of constructing a self. Most of us think of our true selves as something we have to uncover, something we have to find, something like a hidden gem. And of course, 20th century psychology has sort of played into this idea that the self is buried somewhere deep and it has to be found through a lot of work and diligence that it's somewhere hiding. And of course, this is a perception that is fostered by a lot of our experience. Sometimes our thoughts seem very collected and our perceptions seem very sharp. But then other times when we're angry or frightened or worried, we can notice our thoughts spiral out of control and the way we perceive other people can somewhat become distorted. And so the question then is, well, if sometimes my thoughts and my perceptions and my feelings are accurate and other times they're not, there's got to be something inside of me that's creating all of this that I'm unaware of. And so, the Buddha doesn't look at the self in that way at all, as something to be found, or discovered, or uncovered. One of the reasons why the Buddha had different teachings about our true identity, or if there is one, or what would comprise the self, or what role it has, is because the Buddha taught to two completely different kinds of people. One kind he taught were what's known as monks and nuns, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. People who had given up 
their homes, their money, their responsibilities, relationships, and went to live amongst other renunciates in really, really drastic conditions where they had no reliable source of food or uh, comfort. And these people, because they were tr practicing what's called the Lokatura, the transcendent path, everything the Buddha taught was about ending suffering in this lifetime and achieving enlightenment in this lifetime. And so all of the goals of his actions were to quiet the mind. Everything he taught the nuns and monks were how to take actions that would lead to a more tranquil, quiet mind that could become enlightened. The Buddha, though, also gave a lot of teachings to people like us, people who had homes, responsibilities, relationships, and this is called the Lokiya, not the Lokatura, Lokiya, which means the mundane path. And to the householders, the lay practitioners, the Buddha said, you're going to need to have a sense of self. To go around to your job and pretend that you don't have some interpersonal identity with responsibilities and skills that you're bringing would be foolish. So the Buddha teaches a set of instructions that are based not on quieting the mind and achieving liberation immediately in this lifetime at, as the primary goal. The Buddha teaches how can people, given this idea of identity and responsibilities and roles in the world, how can they be skillful, not cause harm to themselves or other people, and then be rewarded with better rebirths so that eventually, down the line, they would become less and less overbalanced towards their responsibilities in the world and more towards the spiritual practice. The Buddha really treasured lay practitioners. He wanted them to be happy. He wanted them to experience as much peace as was possible in lives filled with obligations, responsibilities, people asking for things, and demands. So the Buddha's instructions were about balancing life between our spiritual practice and all of our responsibilities. But at no point does the Buddha ever, to the lay practitioners, teach what he does teach constantly to the renunciates, which is the emphasis upon not-self, letting go all the time of identity beliefs. To lay practitioners, the Buddha instead recommends a skillful, strategic, provisional identity. And I'm going to talk about that tonight. How can we skillfully create ideas of who we are that are useful that help us attain our needs, that help us live happy lives, but are not albatrosses that weigh us down and cause suffering. The first thing to note when it comes to it is that any belief in self or identity that is viewed as lasting and always the same, I'm always the same, I'm never changing, there's some core in me that uh, is unassailable, 
that belief will always cause suffering. Because our experience is in such a state of flux, and from day to day, if we really observe the mind, we will find that there's no constant feeling, emotion, capability that's always there. Some days we're tolerant and patient, some days we're not. Some days we're loving and compassionate, other times we might be frustrated and incapable of showing up. Sometimes we might be uh, intellectual. I came from a family that prided themselves in their intellectual abilities. But I found very quickly that if I told a story that I'm a smarty pants, that that set me up for a lot of suffering. Because there's a lot of times that I'm just not particularly the sharpest knife in the drawer, especially before I have my first coffee in the morning. I like watching stupid movies like the, the rest of us. So anything we latch onto. Uh, if we don't, if we're not able to let go, uh, can cause a great deal of suffering. It can boomerang. And yet, at times, having a sense of identity for parts of our life can be very, very useful. Creating a strategic self. Now, why is this? Most of us, by default, when we try to define ourselves due to what's known as negativity bias, and the mind has... Uh, five times more likelihood to remember negative events than positive. Your brain has what's known as an amygdala, and about three-quarters of the neurons of the amygdala are set up to remember negative experiences. And the amygdala determines, with the hippocampus, what you remember. So your life story is largely constructed of the times people let you down, the times you made mistakes, the times things didn't work out. It's not just you, it's not your fault, it's in my mind, it's in everybody's mind. Why do we have such negative minds? Because that's the type of brains that help us survive. If we were still out in the wild, the way we were 30,000 years ago, having minds that remembered everybody who was unsafe, every situation that was dangerous, would have been a great survival advantage. So, unfortunately... Now today we're the dominant species, or maybe fortunately, but we're still stuck in the same brain that still prioritizes negative experiences. So when you reflect on yourself and try to create a story of who you are, given the brain's inherent negativity bias, you are more likely to create a story of limitations, doubt, something wrong with me, neurosis, a pathology in other words. It's interesting, I saw this study where in the West, of course, as opposed to the East, we're far more, we spend far more time in these studies defining who we are. And the more time we define who we are, the more negative our views tend to be. And so the default setting of identity creation is inherently negative. If you, on your own, just allow your mind to define who you are, you will probably remember, one, the times when a caretaker, who was not as supportive as they always could be, said something negative. Why will you remember that? Even if your parents said more positive remarks than negative, your brain is five times more likely 
to remember the negative statements than the positive. What that means is that they would have to have said five times more positive statements to you than negative for you to have a balanced, objective view of yourself based on the communications you received in childhood. And that plays an enormous role in how we view self. But the brain, again, is set up to remember the negative statements. So even with loving parents, they're fighting an uphill battle. On top of that, the brain is not only set up to remember the negative, but it's also an associative machine. The right hemisphere remembers things by situations. So you can feel very confident in one situation. I feel very confident now when I teach. But put me in a playing field in any sport, and immediately I, my body changes, my breath changes, my thoughts about myself change. So what the hell am I doing here? I hate sports. I don't want to be here. I suck at this. This is terrible. How did I get in there? Who, who lured me? You know, so my entire view of who I am completely changes. If I'm here, my body's relaxed. I feel confident. I, I by now, after 10 years of teaching, I know that I, I know what I'm doing. So in this situation, my identity view is somewhat positive. Put me, though, in a situation where you ask me to paint in front of 500 people, I wouldn't, I'd be a nervous wreck. And my view of self would be one of self-doubt, low self-esteem, worry, concern, fear. My body would change. The entire way I would define myself would be entirely different. So given that we are prone to not only negativity bias, but also to associative recall, the best way to go about creating an identity is not trying to uncover it, but actually to create one that helps us counterbalance the inherent negativity bias. Due to negativity bias, we all, or most people I've worked with over the years, in new adventures and situations in life, have what's called fraud or imposter syndrome. You know what they are? The feeling that when we're in a new job or a new situation or something good happens, we have a feeling of, oh, this is going to be taken away. What am I doing here? I don't deserve this. Or they're going to see right through me. When I go to this job interview, they're going to see through me. When I go to this audition, they're going to see through me. When I show my work to someone, they're going to see through me. The inevitable result of the default self is essentially the imposter and fraud syndrome. So using self strategically can help us counterbalance that, can help us feel empowered to walk into new situations without that sense of, I don't deserve to be here, or I'll be seen through. When I was first teaching 10, uh, ten years ago, and Noah said, okay, you're finished, I'm leaving for Los Angeles, just take over the classes. I was really pretty terrified. And the way I dealt with that is I created a strategic sense of identity. I told myself, I'm a good teacher. 
I had no business telling myself that. There was nobody saying that to me. There was no facts. But I thought, I had just studied with Tanisaro Bhikkhu, and Tanjev said, hey, there's no true self to uncover, so if you're going to think about yourself, you might as well think something positive that helps you. So I said, okay, great, I'm a good Buddhist teacher. <laughs> and that helped me show up for these classes. Now, if I carry that story beyond the t teaching part of my day into the rest of my evening, and I show up with my friends, my buddies that I've met over the years in sobriety groups or in, others, in bands or other situations, if I hang out with my buddies and I start to play the Buddhist teacher, they make it very, very clear that's not welcome. <laughs> if I start to believe all the time that I'm the one who knows, that I'm the holder of the Dharma, then relationships will be really deeply frustrating for all the people in my life. Because there's nothing more tedious than being with the one who knows. <laughs> so, that's why, me, if you ever go out to dinner with me or Noah, I don't really do it that often, but when I do go out, uh, I always immediately disabuse people that I'm the teacher by immediately talking about my favorite death metal band or whatever to send a message I'm not teaching anymore. It's really important to be able to let go of the provisional self stories that we create so that we can not live all the time in any single identity. Identities come with certain responsibilities, ways of looking at the world. For instance, if I believe I am a Buddhist teacher all the time, then I always have to try to get involved with helping people not suffer. I don't have any equanimity if I can't pull back and say, hey, this is my time to take care of myself. Also, if I spend my entire life in an identity view, then the perceptions, the roles, become deeply ingrained and I can't find another way to perceive my life and get a different perspective. So the goal is to be able to have an identity that helps us show up for our life and yet also be able to put it down and move into another view. As one of my teachers said, the Buddha didn't teach identity, he taught personas. We have different personas. Sometimes I'm the teacher, sometimes I'm just the slovenly consumer watching True Detective this year and wondering why it's so bad in comparison to the last year. <laughs> sometimes I'm the, the guy on my bike, you know, uh, just enjoying a very indulgent ride through Brooklyn. Sometimes I'm the creative guy making music. So, before I move into one identity, I in the morning wake up and I say, okay, right now my role is to be of service, to be helpful, to pay attention, to listen, to try to bring my heart and my compassion. But then there's times after I teach or I work with mentor people 
where I meditate and I use my meditation as a way to switch out of that identity into a different persona where now I don't have to end suffering in the world. Now I don't have to remember what the Buddha taught all the time. Now I can, in fact, perceive life from a different perspective. And so I can live fully in one role without it turning into a stranglehold that sabotages my relationships elsewhere. When I learn how to pick up and put down identities, then it's very, very helpful because I don't get rigidly limited by any of them. So, uh, using identity strategically, being willing to put it down, very important. Third, sometimes the worst thing we can do with an identity is to make it so unique that we don't believe anybody can understand our experience. That's the worst thing that we can do. Classic mistake of people who are addicted, people who are uh, who've gone through traumas, they can create stories that only I can understand my pain. Nobody else will get it. When we create an identity that's so rigidly unique, what we do is we cut ourselves off and we wall ourselves into suffering. Emotions are only regulated when we connect to other people. So identity should never, ever be used in a way that isolates us. On the other hand, identity can be used skillfully in a way that connects us. So, for example, people of color. It's wonderful when sanghas like ours have meetings that are set up for groups like people of color or members of the LGBTQ community to present their experience themselves because we cannot understand. I'm taking we, I mean, as a white person, I'm talking right now, I'm using some global we. But for those of us who are white, it's very easy to believe that, oh, identity doesn't matter. The only teachers I've ever heard say that are white teachers in the Buddhist tradition. I know many teachers who are not white, and they never say identity doesn't matter. They always say, hey, as a black person, as somebody of color, as somebody who's Asian American, as somebody who's got this experience as... Um, somebody in the LGBTQ community, I have experiences of walking into a sangha and not seeing anybody who matches me that you cannot understand. So I need to have access to other people who share that identity experience, and I think that's great. I think that's really important. Yet, at the same time, we need to balance that with, uh, let's look at the experience also of alcoholics. Alcoholics, for many years, isolate themselves because they think there's nobody else out there that understands what it means to be incapable of controlling their drink and drug use. Then one day they find another group of alcoholics where they can safely share their experience, just like people and LGBTQ and POC members of those communities. So it's important to have areas where people can safely share their experience born of identity. But then there's other times when we need to be able to acknowledge universal experiences that everybody can understand. I've heard alcoholics in meetings say things that are absolutely ridiculous, like, I'm such an alcoholic today, I woke up irritated. 
I'm such an alcoholic, I got frightened when I got a bill from the IRS. I'm such an alcoholic, I got angry when somebody, you know, you know, honked their horn at me repeatedly in traffic. When we stick too rigidly to our identity beliefs, we can believe that nobody else can understand what it's like to be uh, marginalized, not seen, not taken care of. So we need both. We need opportunities where we can use identity as a way to connect with other people safely and share about experiences that not everyone will understand, and yet also have the ability to drop the identity story so that when our suffering and our experiences are global, we can share them with whoever is available to us and not believe that this suffering is exclusive to our subgroup. So meditation is a great way to make that transition. And the way we can do it is by whatever identity we're in, just let go of the story, come into the body, use the body as a gateway to the present, and then whatever, whatever obligations our identity comes with, if you're somebody who's a healer, taking care of people, if you're a teacher, imparting wisdom, if you're somebody who's a problem solver, putting out fires, whatever it is, use your meditation as a way to let go of all of those obligations and responsibilities and perceive life from a non-involved, detached, permissive, accepting, not needing to fix or solve or change. So, I'd like to conclude. Uh, here's the takeaways. If we allow ourselves to simply allow the mind to, on its own, define our identity, it's going to do it negatively or in ways that are not skillful. It's much better to skillfully, through intentional practice, set provisional identities that help us adjust to all those times in the world where we feel like a, an imposter, a fraud, not good enough, not skilled enough, to counteract all of the woundings of the past and give ourselves a sense of empowerment. We should never create a sense of self that is, make, leaves us feeling completely isolated or unique. It's worthwhile to connect with other people that share identity characteristics, but at the same time be able to empathize with all people when the sufferings are universal. I'm going to end with one story that I like to tell. Uh, the guy who got Robert Downey Jr. sober, his name was Earl H. He's well, very well known in uh, the world of recovery. And I went on a spiritual retreat about 13 or 14 years ago with Earl H. And Earl was uh, telling his, us his life story. And very succinctly, the gist of it was when he was 17, he had a brain tumor, which at that point was inoperable. But they did a trial 
uh, I think chemo or something, they did a trial practice and miraculously it worked and he survived. And so his family decided to, as a celebration, take Earl on a trip to Mexico. His family had some money. So they chartered a plane and they flew down to Mexico and as they crossed the border, their plane crashed. And every member of Earl's family was killed, except for Earl. And for days, Earl hung upside down in the charred remains of the plane, his body broken, unable to move. And at first, bandits came and robbed the plane, and they didn't see that he was alive. And then eventually, the army came, spotted the plane, and took all the bodies along with Earl and dumped them in the back of a truck and brought them to the morgue because they couldn't see that Earl was alive. So he was driven back to the truck with the carcasses of his mother, his father, and his sister. He wound up in the hospital when they found he was alive for months on end, recovering from all the broken bones. And when he returned to the States, understandably given this experience, his one goal in life is to use his significant inheritance to kill himself. So he bought a massive amount of drugs and alcohol with the idea of ending his life. The only problem was that Earl couldn't see his plan through. No matter how much he drank and consumed, he didn't die. Eventually, after one horrendous bottom after another, he gave up, and he got sober, and it became, given his story, which is a pretty amazing one, he became a very in-demand circuit speaker, and the recordings of his talks started being published far and wide. One night, many years into sobriety, Earl was speaking at a meeting, and a woman, hearing his name, hearing him introduce himself as Earl H., jumped up and started crying uncontrollably and ran up to the front of the stage and started hugging him. And he was a little embarrassed, but eventually he calmed her down and asked her what was going on. And she explained that when she was younger, she was in a plane crash where every member of her family was killed. And she too had tried to kill herself and couldn't do it and that the only person that she had found to help her through that time was the recordings that he had made in sobriety. The reason I'm telling you this is that no matter what identity story you tell yourself, if you believe it's unique, you're wrong. <laughs> There's always somebody out there who will understand your feelings and your emotions. So thank you for listening. I hope that was worthwhile.